Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. This is the podcast that looks at one film in each episode and uses it to explain the nine types and three instinctual biases of the Enneagram model of personality. One movie, one type. My name is Mario Sakura, and I'll be joined by Maria Jose Munita and Tamar Zanetti. We are the principals of Awareness to Action International, a global consulting and training company that specializes in practical applications of the Enneagram. You can find out more about us and our work at awarenesstoaction.com. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. So welcome back, everybody. We're going to continue our conversation about the Rocky saga and the inner triangle of the Enneagram and the core qualities and accelerators. I'm Mario Sakura here, as always, with Maria Jose Monita. Hi, Mario. Hi, Tamar. And Tamar Zanetti. Hello, Mario Jose. Hello, Mario. So before we continue with our conversation of the Rocky movies, we're going to start moving into Rocky Balboa now and then to Creed. We wanted to just loop back and recap the core qualities and accelerators. Uh, these are elements of what we do in the awareness to action approach. Uh, the core qualities represent deeper aspects of our nature. It's also where the Enneagram starts to go from being a model of nine different kinds of people to being a model of nine different aspects or qualities of each one of us. So even though we're talking about three, six, and nines as Enneagram types in this episode, as we talk about the core qualities at points three, six, and nine, we're really talking about things or aspects of our nature that we all experience. So this is relevant to all of us, these dynamics of the psyche that we're going to be describing uh, affect each one of us, not just three sixes and nines. Uh, before we get into describing those, and we're only going to talk about the three of them, we're not going to talk about all nine at this point. Uh, if people want to learn that, they can you know, watch our videos or you know, attend our, our, our programs, but uh, we're going to talk about those three. So uh, before we describe those three any, any comments from you guys? Yeah, I just want to say that you have wrote a blog about it as well. So this is another resource uh, where mm-hmm. people can read about the core qualities. It's on Great. awarenesstoaction.com website, the blog okay. section. I just wanted to reinforce the importance of these core qualities and and the accelerators to nurture them. I think it's part of the work that we do, but we don't often talk about it. So I'm excited that we're going to be sharing this in this podcast. Yeah, you, you reminded me, uh, Maria Jose, that uh, actually it's it's a layer of uh, of the awareness to action enneagram that is very powerful. And uh, normally, when I use the core qualities with my clients, I see transformational results on that level. It's uh, I mean, it gets to the to the core of things. And that actually the results is really, it's not like a little change, but transformation in the character of the client, accelerating into achieving the, the, ob- the, the objective of my clients. So the core qualities are aspects of our nature that become stunted in our childhood. And this is one of the big 
dilemmas that we all face. It's the root of much of our suffering that we still, you know, there are these aspects of our nature that are not given the chance to mature due to the socialization process, life in general. It's kind of what happens to us. It's not anybody's fault. It's not um, something that shouldn't happen. There's no should about it. It just does. And the, the, the goal of the work that we're trying to do is trying to create space for the natural maturation of these qualities, right? So they can grow. We often use the analogy of the acorn and the oak tree, right? These qualities are not fully formed in us, like some people would suggest in some traditions that, you know, this essence is there fully formed and we just need to reconnect to it. That's uh, not what we're suggesting. We're suggesting that these are things that have to develop over time, just like everything else in nature, right? Uh, you know, acorn or oak trees don't just pop out of the ground, right? They start off as acorns and they have to grow. People don't, you know, aren't born fully grown. They start out as babies and, and they grow. So the work that we do is trying to create space through working with the personality structures and through different behavioral practices to create space for the nurturance of these core qualities so they can mature. So the core qualities at point the core quality of point 9 is benevolence, right? It's a it's a state of good intention. And that's the way we like to think of these uh, core qualities as states rather than actions. Right? You really can't do the core qualities. You experience them. And then the state of being in the core quality or expressing it leads to you know, different kinds of behaviors and thoughts and emotions than we would feel when we're in a less mature form of that. Right? So for point nine, it's benevolence. And the stunting of point nine is that we start to believe we are not good inherently, that we have to be good instead of just being good. It's our goodness is through the result of our actions and whether or not other people love us as a reflection of our fundamental goodness, right, or a validation of our fundamental goodness. So what we all feel, but what the nine feels most acutely, is this loss of contact with benevolence, this feeling of, I am not lovable, I am not good. We're babies. We are inherently, we have this benevolence, but it's in an immature way. So it's the lack of ill will. So it's not that we're trying to be good, bad, or we feel that we're good. We're just not bad. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, yeah. uh, you don't meet hateful babies, right? No, yes. At least none that I've ever met. Right? Yeah. And that's different to the mature version of benevolence, which is more like expressed goodwill. So yes. we, it's more intentional or it's, it's, it's more aware than the immature version. Yes. And that we need to nurture in one of the ways to nurture it or allowing space for it, as you were saying, is practicing the accelerators. Yes, and we'll come back to the accelerators in a moment, but you're absolutely right. So it's basically through practicing the accelerators and working on rewriting the strategy over and over again. Yeah, and, and, and be, being a nine, the way I experience it, I mean, unconsciously sometimes, it's like uh, I need to get my burden out of others from the way. So it's not uh, this, this stunted benevolence that... 
the best solution for any problem is that I go out of the formula. So yes. things would be better if uh, my needs are, is not part of the formula. So people yeah. w- will not have this burden of fulfilling my needs. Rather than, which is should be the the matured one, is no, I have value and I can help this person or the people with my value in overcoming their challenges or achieving their objectives and so on. And, and so the idea of value takes us to point three, right? The core quality at point three is value. Okay? When we see babies, they, we understand they are inherently valuable. Right. You bring a baby into the room and everything stops. Right. Everybody gathers around. Everybody wants to see the baby. Everybody wants to protect the baby. Everybody wants to care for the baby. It's fundamental to our nature. We inherently place value on babies. Okay. And babies kind of feel that, you know, they kind of feel that, hey, wait, I, I do have this value. Um, but again, the message that we get in childhood is you have to, you have to earn your value, right? It's not the inherent value that the baby has. It's this idea that, you know, you have to sing for your supper. You have to go to school and get good grades. You have to clean your room. You have to do what mommy and daddy tell you. You have to be pretty. You have to be good looking. You have to be good at sports, whatever it is. So our, our feeling of value becomes externalized, right? Uh, We don't just have this inherent sense of value that we all felt as children. We feel like I have to go out and earn my value in some way. And the challenge we all have is that because we're talking about something inherent, meaning just I'm valuable just because every life is precious. Because we lose contact with that, we start to, you know, suffer because you can't capture an internal feeling of value through external accomplishment. And this is the struggle of the three, identifying their value through what it is they accomplish. Who am I? Why am I important if I am not achieving anything? Yeah, and that's why the mature version that we see in threes of this core quality is, or in every type, but the mature version of value is a self-possessed achievement. It's not based on this external validation, but in something that rewarding independent of other people. Yeah, Yeah. it's intrinsic. Yeah. It's just there, and I feel it. Yeah, and the... uh stunted version looks like you you need to have the machine working all the time to produce value so it's like value is an outcome of an ongoing action and uh, as you both of you said it does not satisfy me and it takes lots of effort and you're somewhere in a vicious circus so the matured version and, and this is my experience in my life, when I started to slow down and really doing it the easy way, just, just you know, less effort and more value outcome. So yeah. because, I mean, it, it does not need all of this effort because there is an intrinsic value that comes through the process. Right. And I, I want to make sure as we go, we capture uh, a phrase that comes up in um, Rocky, 
a number of times about things not mattering right it doesn't matter yeah. uh, we saw that with uh, the uh, the night before the fight with apollo creed when the promoter said it doesn't matter rocky but there's another version of it doesn't matter that i think actually reflects the higher aspect of value right we start to see where our accomplishments don't matter as much as we thought mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's reflected, as we pointed out before, that the, the hero in all three of these movies loses the fight. Right. So it's not about the, you know, the obvious victory, but it's about something much deeper that we start to find. Okay. Um, so the core quality at point six is confidence. It's this feeling of I can handle this. Right. I'll be OK. You know, I will figure out how to make it work, or if it doesn't work the way I want, I thought, you know, I think things will be okay anyway. So the child comes into the world, and yes, some children are a bit more neurotic and, you know, fearful than others, but they haven't picked up the lessons yet about how scary life is, right? About how dangerous life can be, about all the threats and challenges that await us, right? So, so the baby has this sort of naive confidence that they go into. And we need that. I mean, think of, you know, if we didn't have this naive confidence, none of us would learn to walk, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because, you know, we have to be able to do things that are a little bit, you know, stretching us and, you know, might seem reckless from one perspective. But so the, the, the challenge that the six faces due to that lack of confidence is this need to strive to feel secure all the time. They need to proactively identify threats, right? To, to, you know, have a highly attuned radar for challenges that are going on. Now, again, this confidence, lack of confidence, this stunting of confidence affects all of us. Yeah, and the mature version of this confidence is not that I just trust without ever doubting or ever looking at the risks it's the appropriate yes. preparation so yes. i i look at the risks i prepare for them but then i go ahead and address whatever challenges i need to or want to so it's it's not this um kind of naive confidence but it's more aware confidence now it is interesting to me to see uh, how Tamar refers to these things being a nine, because every time you say, you talk about it, Tamar, confidence, value, and benevolence are kind of combined. Yes, so when you absolutely. talk about benevolence, yeah. you said you talked about, about value, and there was something implicit about feeling confident about it. Yes. So confident that I have the value, that I'm good. It's, and, and that's what we see in three, six, and nines, that it, they are, kind of one part of the other, and they support each other in different ways. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a good point, uh, Maria Z. I mean, while you're saying it, I can uh, I can imagine it's, that it's like multifacets of the same things. I mean, these three uh, lines, the triangle, is showing one thing with uh, with multiple facets, with three facets, let's say. So confidence here, I mean, I mean, I faced this a lot, especially in my career and certain points of time when you feel that actually, you know, I cannot do it. I don't have what it takes to do it. Yeah. This is this is a new challenge that is much bigger than what I can 
really face. And, and this is more of the stunted version of the confidence where you see the challenge much, much, much bigger than what it is. It's like you're looking at a magnifying glass that make it much bigger than your capabilities. While the mature version is putting things in perspectives. This is the challenge. And this is the gap that you need to fill in between your capabilities and your challenge. And this happens by doing the hard work, raising the level of your capabilities. So it, it becomes more of logical process and more of an achievable thing and more of, and at, at the end, an effective way of overcoming challenges. This is a, an important insight into the nature of the Enneagram, right? So everybody likes to think of the Enneagram, again, as these nine different personality types, okay? And yes, it is that. But the Enneagram also represents a dynamic between forces, right? And this point here of the interconnectedness of these three core qualities is an important one. There's no hard line, right? These are not three things in separate boxes that are part of a collection of things in a toolbox. These are, you know, any attempt to talk about human nature is an approximation, right? It's a, it's a diminishment of the thing itself. And we have to keep remembering that this is not just three separate things, but three interwoven things that are more of a stew than, you know, a, a, a separate course meal or something, right? So, uh, you know, everything is blended together in an interwoven way. And you can't take one out right, uh, without influencing the others. And in the same way, work on one of these areas will influence the others as well. Because the uh, points three, six, and nine are part of the triangle, doesn't mean that it. this only happens with these three type types or points. I think that for me as a one, there's a similar thing with the core quality at my point and the two connecting points. It, it, it is they are very interconnected and right. working on one develops the other and although they are not a perfect triangle awareness to action offers a unique approach to applying the enneagram professionally with leaders and organizations as well as for personal development what makes us stand apart is our enneagram expertise and focus on understanding human nature we know people because we see people. And this is a skill set that can be taught and learned. Human nature is complex and simple at the same time. Our mission is to help people see clearly and act accordingly. Why? Because the ability to see ourselves and others clearly and honestly is essential. It enables us to act in more adaptive and useful ways. The multicultural team and awareness to action will help you learn tools and practices to become more aware and also to understand and engage people more effectively. Learn more at awarenesstoaction.com. Join us at 2021 for exciting learning opportunities. I have an observation and a question for you guys. These specific three points, I mean, in terms of core qualities, I observe that I find them a lot 
I needed to work on with my client, even if they are not nines or three or 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 six. And and my my analysis for that this is this happens due to the connection to business. I mean, in business, you need to really uh, create value. You need to be confident that you can go over uh, challenges and achieve objectives, and you really need to be satisfied that you have some kind of benevolence and creating something good for the others. I don't know. What's your reflection on that? Yeah, I, I agree. There is something fundamental about these dynamics that is relevant to all of us. One of the things we've already talked about is how the core qualities all, you know, are something we all experience that all influence us in one way or another. But there is something about points three, six, and nine that is foundational to what it means to be human. I mean, they really are the fundamental questions. Who am I, right? Why am I here, okay? How am I going to make it through this world? And so there's a lot of talk that's, you know, very superficial about the, you know, the three, the six, and the nine being kind of the fundamental types, and then the others are sort of variations on that. I don't buy that, but... These three points, when we're talking about this deeper layer of the Enneagram, really do represent something foundational and fundamental. And yes, that is, so that influences us in our work lives, for sure, right? Because these are questions about how am I going to function in life? Yeah. And it is my experience as well. And I was just thinking that, uh, so our society, at least here, it's so based on value and how you measure the value that you have and usually externalize that. So I find myself really, really often working on value and nurturing that through the accelerator at point three with most of my clients and the other two as well, but not as much as value. But I think it's because we're working with executives and because society kind of demands (laughs) a level of success. And and also I think that at some point in life, which I used to see like around 50 years old, but now I think it's even earlier, there is a crisis of kind of sense of like, Mm -hmm. what am I what's my purpose in life and why am I here and what and and I think that goes goes back to the point three uh, core quality and accelerator so yeah 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 so so let's use that to transition to the accelerators right so the accelerators are practices that we use to nurture the core qualities uh, so Again, you know, the the analogy is that the core qualities are in immature form, like an acorn, and we need some way to help them develop. And the accelerators are practices that we have found that help to nurture the maturation of the core qualities. And they're fairly simple, right? I mean, but but they're very targeted, okay? And so at point nine, the accelerator is generativity. Generativity is this idea of working to nurture the next generation, okay? It's giving of myself in a selfless way. It's recognizing that I have something to offer and other people would benefit from what it is I have to offer. 
I may gain the intrinsic satisfaction of sharing this. It may make me feel good to help others, but there's no substantive gain. There's no, you know, it's it's altruistic in a sense, or as altruistic as any behavior can be. And, and there's less of a fear for nouns and for everyone to look arrogant when offering these to kind of the world, right. uh, because it's um, kind of helping, mentoring. Yeah. And <laughs> but you're not charging any money for it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I wanted to say a person's story, especially about the uh, confidence, uh, actually the accelerator, which is... Uh, uh, evidence for point six. If we are transitioning to this point now, yeah. So, uh, so, so, so let's go go ahead. So, the the accelerator at point six is what we call evidence. It's simply making a list and reminding ourselves of our achievements and accomplishments and our capabilities. Right. So, the the six has a tendency, and the six in all of us has a tendency to forget the past, to forget what our capabilities are to undervalue uh, past achievements. And so what we have our clients do, first of all, point nine with the, uh, the generativity, we will have them mentor people. We will have them find ways to give back. And at point six, when we're working with evidence, we have them make lists of their past achievements, not to publish to other people, not to brag about, not as part of their personal brand, but to remind themselves of who they are and what they've done. And, and many times I've seen that they have a hard time making that list because they don't see certain things as, a, as an accomplishment. Yeah. So when going through what they have done, you can help them see that certain things are worth noting, that they're evidence of them being capable. Yeah, I remember, I, I remember working with a, a type 9 client one time and giving him that exercise and he forgot to write down that he had earned a phd right <laughs> you know so uh so you're right they, they, we, we can lose sight of that yeah so, so go ahead Tamara. yeah actually actually it was a, a, a story with you mario so when right. I, when I hope it's, uh, no, no, I hope it was it's not a good an embarrassing one. one. So yeah, okay, it, right, it was good. a good one, and and the beauty of it that I experienced the accelerator of the evidence. So so I had, I mean, since I had this experience, I know when I use it with client, what do they experience? And this is a very important thing for a coach is to have the same experience that the client they go through. So I remember that was in twenty, probably fifteen or sixteen. I wanted to quit my corporate job and I asked you, Mario, to coach me through it. And, uh, and you did. Actually, it was a couple of coaching sessions. In the first, at the end of the first coaching session, you said, okay, I want you to create this list of your achievements and your capabilities. And if you can't really, I can't remember if this is what you said or this is what I came up with. I think this is what you said. And if you really can find a lot because I expect you not to find a lot. Just ask people that you trust about your capabilities and your achievements. And for me, I mean, when I when I heard this request, I said, I mean, come on. I mean, I've been in corporates for almost twenty eight years. I've been. I, I did this exercise when I was very young. What is what? What the kind of a silly exercise is this? So that was my reaction, but I was polite with you. I did not say anything. And I said, okay, I mean, if I ask for coaching, I have to really do what uh, what is being told. 
And it was really an amazing exercise because to start with, as you said, it was not easy to find my achievements and my capabilities. And I, I was like shocked. How come that I can find a lot? And I went to like few people around me. It's like, I mean, four or five people who I trust really. And I said, you know, I'm doing this exercise. It's very helpful for me and for my career. So please help me out. And I found that one of the capabilities that I have and achievement as well that I did not know about, I, I couldn't find it myself, but it was repeated among the four persons that I asked to give me feedback, is that I'm having a great network of people, people that I helped a lot, and they would love to help me, I mean, with really valuable help. I mean, it's like consultant who would give me his consulting services that uh, he charged for thousands of dollars. He would do it for free. Someone who will get me uh, into meeting uh, uh, a top-notch uh, person. I mean, he would do it because he's just returning something that I did. And that was, I mean, that among others, but this specifically, when I realized that I have that, that was the most important tool I'm being using since then. Yeah. And again, with these accelerators, they're deceptively simple, most of them. But it's getting the right one for the right person for the right need, right? Uh, and that's, I think that's where the, that's the beauty of the Enneagram. It tells us exactly what a nine, three, or six needs, right? And and I think, and when it's the right time, I think that yes. at some point, yes. it's exactly. um, they're not prepared for it and they don't see the value of it. It doesn't make yes. sense. So I think that there's a point where when uh, it's required and yeah. most useful. Yeah, and, and that's just dependent on the wisdom and brilliance of the coach. Of course. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah actually, actually, what happens when I give uh, these accelerators, I mean, any of these accelerators, my client, I mean, it will start with seeing them so simple and, and actually yes. in the mind of the client, why am I paying that high fees yeah. for yeah. these simple things? But yeah. but next session or or after a few days, they would come back and would say that was a very deep and profound exercise that is helping yeah. me a lot. So the, the third accelerator, right? So we talked about generativity. We talk about evidence. Uh, the third accelerator and the one related to point three is purpose, identifying a, a sense of purpose or even a specific purpose statement. Okay. What is it I'm trying to accomplish? And again, to your point, Tamar, this is something that everybody does, right? I mean, this is something that you do in, you know, uh, in, in university or you do in a basic management program, et cetera, et cetera. But by the time people get to the point in their careers where we are working with them, they have lost sight of that. Right. And they realize that the purpose statement they might have developed earlier in life, you know, was they weren't far enough along in life to really have a sense of what their purpose was, or they've changed so much that it's different. So, so what we want to do with the three, and again, for the three and all of us is say, okay, all this stuff you're doing, why are you doing it? Right? What purpose is this for? What direction is this going? And this can actually be a fairly daunting activity 
because people think, my goodness, figuring out my purpose in life, my, you know, people go on, you know, spiritual quests to figure that out. And they wait for some revelation, you know, some burning bush or some clouds or some message in the sky that will tell them what their purpose in life is. It's not that big a deal, right? I mean, when you think about it, it's just, okay, Give some thought to what it is you're trying to really accomplish in the next foreseeable part of your life and write it down with a pencil, right? We always tell people you write it with a pencil or in a word file. You're not getting a tattoo. You're not committing yourself to a a lifetime marriage to this purpose. It is just to give you some sense of the why about what you put your energy into. Because what threes are wrestling with is just this feeling of, I just need to achieve things. I just need to do things. I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to accomplish. But they feel like a hamster in a wheel, never getting a sense of why I'm doing this, what I'm really trying to get at. And the act of sitting down and thinking through this and writing out a purpose statement helps to focus all of this, helps us understand what not to do as much as what to do. And we start to realize, we, we start to do that thing that you talked about, Tamara, of slowing down, right, of uh, experiencing this and and moving more methodically and calmly and contently towards something. And it's it's um, going from trying to achieve based on what other people value to working towards my own goals, my own sense of what it's important to me. And when I move towards that purpose, it feels more fulfilling. So it's, it looks like I'm making progress. I'm getting somewhere. It's uh, instead of just endlessly working towards what other people value and where I will get recognition from the outside. Yeah. I'm curious uh, if you get some resistance from your client. Uh, uh, to to really write down their uh, statement, I do, and actually the way the, the way I deal with it, I, I would like to know also how do you deal with it. But the way I deal with it, I would, I mean, in in the back of my mind, I understand that there is an image, like a social image of the purpose, as you said, Mario, that's like spiritual quest, and anyone would say I'm not ready for a quest now. So I start by saying, you know, it's some, it's not something that you will find; it's something that you will create. And something that you can change anytime, whenever you feel that you need to change. So just give some thought to it and put it on, on paper, and and that's okay. You can really f- refine it as you go. It's it, it's okay. It's it's a sim- it's a s- simpler than what you think. What what kind of resistance do you get, and how do you deal with it? So so very similar to what you're saying. I, I get a lot of resistance, and it's not so much res. It's it's anxiety, yes. I would say, yes. right? It's fear-based. Um, it's because it feels daunting. Again, it feels like you're making some kind of lifetime commitment to something. And and again, because we have such distorted notions about finding your purpose instead of creating your purpose, then people feel overwhelmed by the activity. So what I just say to them is, you know, again, look, this is not, it's not a lifetime commitment. You're writing it in pencil. You should be revisiting this regularly. But if you don't do this, you will simply not be an effective person because you're going to be wandering around and you're going to be, you know, doing this and doing that when you should be doing something else. And I often also use the example of when Steve Jobs returned to Apple 
after being, you know, he got kicked out and then he came back. First thing he did was, okay, show me all the products you're developing right now. And then they gave him the list and he said, okay, we're getting rid of all these. We're going to do four things, right? And so that was fundamentally defining the purpose of the business. And it allowed them to be successful from that foundation. So when you put it in those kind of, here's the business benefit I'm going to get from this, people are much more willing. And then the idea that this actually changes their life, you know, is like the is like the pill you put inside the peanut butter that you give to your dog, right? You know, you can't get them to take the pill. So you wrap it in peanut butter. I, and I, I have learn more friends about who put it on their husband's tea. <laughs> Check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the field of pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. We are going to be moving from Rocky, the first of the Rocky series, to the movie Rocky Balboa. We're skipping over Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, and Rocky 5, none of which I recommend as movies. But Rocky Balboa, 2006, it's a checking in with Rocky 30 years after the movie Rocky. Okay, At some point, Rocky in the first movie said that he is 30 years old. And so it's 30 years later, which means he's 59, 60 okay, at this point. So we run into a bit of a credibility issue, I think, uh, right at the outset with this movie. But... Rocky Balboa. Now, when Rocky, when when Sylvester Stallone announced that he was going to film another Rocky movie, fifteen years or so after the last Rocky movie, which was a critical and at least a critical disaster. I don't know if Rocky Five made money or not in the in the box office. It was a very lucrative franchise. Sylvester Stallone made a whole lot of money off the Rocky movies, but the the, the reaction was, "Are you kidding me?" You know, the guy's 60 years old, right? I think the oldest heavyweight champion uh, in history was George Foreman at 46 years old, defeated a much younger Michael Moore in a fight that he was losing up until the end when Foreman was, you know, 46 years old. He was a pretty big and heavy guy, but he could still punch like a mule, right? I mean, and he caught... Michael Moore with a right cross, I think it was, and Michael Moore dropped like a ton, like a like a sack of potatoes or something, right? Just knocked him out. Now, I think Archie Moore fought till he was almost fifty years old, but late fifties in boxing is really, it's just absurd. Okay, so you have to put aside this idea that it's a fantasy. So you don't it's a fantasy. Yes, <laughs> it's I, I, you know, if Tamara, I'd go a little further and I'd say it's a spiritual allegory. Yeah. Okay, um, that uh, <laughs> I almost All made right. you spit your coffee out there, Maria Jose, didn't I? <laughs> you did. Yeah, I, but look, it was, it, it, you know, Sly Stallone wanted to get one last paycheck 
off of Rocky, I think, you know, and uh, and it was a surprisingly successful movie and it was surprisingly well received uh, by most critics and even the audience. It made a lot of money. It made over $100 million and I think on a $23, 24000000 million budget did well. Uh, people liked it, right? Um, I know that I did. And I'll tell you why I liked it because having endured most of those other movies and watched the character of Rocky become diffuse, becoming more three-ish than the, the person he really was, he became a less interesting character to me. And when we revisit Rocky Balboa, that guy's Rocky, right? I mean, you can see, okay, yeah, that's that same guy from 30 years ago from the first movie. Right. There was not this sort of, you know, wait a minute, who's this guy, you know, experience that you have watching, say, Rocky three. Okay. I'm lucky that I didn't watch all those movies. So I only watched <laughs> Rocky, Rocky Balboa and Creed. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. So uh, so again, for me and, you know, in addition to this, this idea of a quest in the movie there, it's almost like it's a love letter to the character of Rocky. And we talked about this when we talked about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We talked about how John Hughes said that Ferris Bueller was a love letter to the city of Chicago. And I felt that Stallone, who wrote and directed Rocky Balboa, was kind of doing the same thing with both the character of Rocky and the city of Philadelphia. Thoughts on that? Well, I think with the character, yes. I could just not... I couldn't help myself but adoring the character. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's just, it's too yeah. lovable. And as for, as for Philadelphia, I think that you probably, because you're from there, you read, you're reading more into it and have more distinctions than I do. And, but to me, it's a lot about highlighting all, I mean, everything or many things about the city. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I agree. Tamar, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think after the I have seen Rocky Rocky two and three, not four and five. So I think after these commercial movies that uh, kept on, I mean, part two and three and so on, Sylv Sylvester Stallone wanted to have something that present the uh, humanity of the characters with with yeah. all I mean all dimension of humanities with the soft parts the weak parts and even the great parts that evolves from under the racks. I think also that this movie is in a sense very autobiographical for Sylvester Stallone right I mean in the late 70s early 80s Stallone was the biggest movie star in the world right and there was this sort of battle through the early 80s of who was the bigger star Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger right and they had this kind of friendly rivalry that shows up and again in the uh, Expendables series of movies so he was huge And then went through some really difficult times where nobody was taking him seriously anymore. And then he would make a movie like Copland where he would get some respect again. And so he was kind of asking this question of, all right, what's this all for? Who am I if I'm not the most famous actor, you know, uh, in, in the world and all these sort of questions. So I think this was a very autobiographical movie, you know, told through the character of Rocky. As I said in the last podcast, this movie is very much about regret. 
right? It's about time. It's about, I think, too, something that was interesting to me is it showed the cyclical nature of self-development, right? Self-development and growth is always two steps forward, one step back, okay? It's never finished. We keep getting dragged back into a new or different version of the same crap we've been struggling with our whole life, right? So it's, you know, a, a progress is not linear in this perspective when it comes to working on ourselves. It's more like a spiral, I like to think, right? It's like we're climbing a spiral staircase, and we keep revisiting these same themes over and over and over again, but in a slightly different way, right? A more elevated way, perhaps. Yeah, life hits us with kind of the same stuff over and over again, but in we are different, mm-hmm. and and the challenges are different as well. When you're 50 or 60, is different than when you're 30 or 20. So I think that right. it's a new wave of identity crisis or facing some challenges that might have looked similar before, but you're not the same. And at that point in your life, they're not the same either. So in the opening of Rocky Balboa, uh, it is the anniversary of um, Adrian's passing away, right? Uh, Rocky has lost the love of his life. He is on kind of an anniversary tour with her brother, Polly. And uh, it starts out at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia, overlooking the Delaware River. Uh, A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful spot. Um, One of the prettiest urban areas I've ever seen. And her tombstone is actually still there at the cemetery, right? Uh, They moved it from the spot where it was in the movie to right next to the entrance of the cemetery to keep tourists from going to search for it, right? Mm-hmm. Trampling through the cemetery. But you can still see Clever. her tombstone. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. So, uh, so uh, and Rocky, you know, it starts off with him sitting in a chair that he keeps in a tree by her grave and Paulie's standing in the background, you know, kind of like, come on, Rocky, let's get out of here kind of thing. And they go from one stop to another in a way it's uh, he's revisiting all the things he did with Adrian in the past, but he's also reflecting upon his life, right? He is looking back and he is noticing the changes in things, right? The, the pet store where she worked is still there, but it's closed and boarded up. Uh, primarily he goes to the ice rink and it's just a vacant lot with you know pieces of the ice rink still there and he's talking about how his life now is just the things he's the memories he's carrying around that everything good that happened to him is in the past again he has gone to sleep to himself right he has given up living although he's uh running a restaurant called adrian's He's living in a little row home in Kensington. It's not South Philadelphia, but uh, the the restaurant is in South Philadelphia. But he's living there, and he's having this nice little life. He goes to the Italian market, and he buys the food, you know, and he picks out the cheese and the fish and all these things. And, you know, his life is just a kind of series of things that happens. Yeah, but they happen sort of in the past because it's called Adrian's, and all he does I mean, not all he does, but what you see him doing is entertaining people eating there with stories about his past. Yes, which he's telling pretty robotically as he's telling these stories, right? It's like... Like a script. 
Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Right. You can tell. And, and people would say even later when people come to visit, he say, you know, do, do, do you want to hear me tell a story? People like these, you know, and there's, you know, these different things where he is reacting to life in a rote, habitual way. Clearly older, you know, much older, 30 years, clearly wiser. I think he has more to offer. He's, um, you know, scarred by life. But, you know, I think it's uh, it was Hemingway who said, you know, the uh, you know, we're stronger in the broken places. And I think that shows in Rocky throughout the course of this movie. Um, But, you know, again, he's he's living on autopilot in a sense. Yeah. And when he says that. If you live someplace long enough, you become that place, which is a line that gets used. And we mentioned it in the previous podcast. It's sort of that, like he's not that alive as well. Right, right. It's right. He has blended in with the place and with the routines. Yeah. Right. And again, this is the dilemma of the nine. It's Mm -hmm. this losing of oneself to the other. Yeah. Uh, whether it be the individual other, as often happens in the uh, case of the transmitting nine, right? The uh, the loss of oneself's agenda, one's own agenda in the significant other. The, the, the navigating nine loses themselves to the group. Uh, the preserving nine tends to lose themselves to the cocoon, right? To kind of blend in. So we're seeing this with Rocky. And a couple of things start to happen, right? So he is doing his nostalgia tour, and he encounters Little Marie in a bar. Okay, he he wanders into the same bar from the first movie, uh, the Lucky Seven. I don't know if that's a real bar or not. It's under the shadow of the uh, Market Frankfurt elevated train in uh, Kensington. For those of you who want to go look for it. Uh, <laughs> so um, so uh, he runs into little Marie. He doesn't know who she is. She obviously knows him. Uh, we skipped over a point. I'll go back to it in a minute. But when he goes, shows up at his son's office, mm-hmm. uh, his workplace. So I'll go back to that in a moment. But he walks into the bar. And, of course, everybody knows who he is in the bar, the the six people, you know, in this pathetic bar and the bartender. Um, she says to him, I'm sorry that, you know, but to hear about your passing. And he says, yeah, she died of the woman cancer. Right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so the only he was thing- not, uh, I mean, the use of the of words was not his strength. Uh, yeah, well, you know, he had, he, he had an illiterate, poetry about him i think right (laughs) you you know like for example later when she says that her son's father was from jamaica he says oh european right (laughs) (laughs) so you know not a not a you know not a knowledgeable person he was charming yeah he's not a knowledgeable person but he had some wisdom to him right Mm -hmm. I, i think and so um the only philadelphia accent that appears in these movies is the girl who walks over to him in the bar and tries to get free drinks out of him. That's the only per- person in the, any of these movies who represent how people from Philadelphia really talk, which is why they don't show it in movies, because it's really not a pleasant, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, accent. So anyway, so he ends up realizing that he's talking to Lil Marie from 30 years ago, who is now all grown up, although he still calls her Lil Marie throughout the movie. He offers her a ride home, uh, meets her son, who's a biracial son named Steps, short for Stephen, 
who's not real friendly to Rocky. So an interesting thing happens here. Uh, Maria Jose, describe what's what's going on in this scene. For some strange reason, he feels drawn to helping them and yes. to support them and kind of take care of them, I guess. It's like if he had lost some sense of purpose and he needed something to look forward and not, not just look back. And his son doesn't want to have much of a relationship with him. Yes. And and these people looked so alone and he wanted to, he felt like protecting them, I, th- I think, and nurture yes. them and offers her to hang out with his her son. And yeah. it's all weird, you know, because... <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is almost like, is this guy a stalker? Yes. Or, you know, what's going on here, right? Okay. It's hard but to explain. It is hard to explain. But it captures this idea of generativity that we talk about Mm -hmm. related to point nine, the accelerator that helps us nurture the core quality of benevolence is generativity. This idea of giving to the next generation without expectation of something in return. It's about stepping outside of oneself and one's own needs just to be altruistic in a sense. And to help others grow. And so something happens here. It might be this reconnection with the past, you know, in the midst of his mourning about the past. It might be this seeing this young man who, you know, is clearly, you know, living a tough life, right? I mean, this is not a nice neighborhood they're living in. The the houses next door are burned out. The front street light's not working. So he takes it in his heart to, to help them. Without a sense of expectation, uh, it just in, makes me makes him feel good. Exactly, exactly. Right, it just feels good to do it. Tamar, were you going to comment on that? Yeah, and, and I would say also his bad relationship with his son is like causing mm-hmm. him kind of pain that he yes. feels. I mean, unconsciously un- uh, compensating uh, for it uh, by the relation with steps or trying to guide and trying to make their life better. So it is kind of filling a void for Mm -hmm. Rocky, right? Because we we didn't talk about his relationship with his son, but his son is all grown up now. You know, he says to him, uh, when I was reading the background, it said his son had joined a law firm, but Rocky, when he's talking to him in the previous scene, and uh, he says to him, don't let those numbers drive you crazy, right? Which made it sound like he has some kind of accounting job or something. I don't know. But anyway, he shows up where his son, Robert, now an adult, works. And now this is Rocky Balboa, right? You know, a favored son of Philadelphia showing up in this center city office building in this big lobby and people are coming up, yo, Rock, yo, Rock, you know, can I take your picture? Can I get your autograph sort of thing? And here's this poor kid trying to make his own way in the shadow of, you know, the most famous person in the city. Okay. Uh, there's clearly a strain in the relationship. I don't think the problem is that he doesn't lo- love his father. It's like the identity or the image of his father that he is trying to avoid. Yeah. And he feels conflicted about it. Yeah. It's this idea of uh, how can I know who I am if every time somebody looks at me, they no. see you. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, they don't see me. They see you. And this is Robert's big challenge, right, of, you know, even his boss who before, you know, they see Rocky is giving him a hard time, you know, about being late for work and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then when 
And, and he said, I don't care who your dad is. Yes. But until, he did care. <laughs> yeah, right. Until he sees Rocky and then says, oh, you know, finally I get to meet you. And, you know, can we get a picture taken and all this sort of stuff. So he's doing what anybody else would do in the presence of Rocky Balboa. Like, you know, and the to, son only ha gets to take the picture. Yes. And you know how that feels, right? <laughs> I know yeah. how that feels when all of a sudden you're forgotten and asked to take a picture of someone else who is famous. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to tell that story another time on yeah. the podcast, Mario. Yeah. Jose. And, and, right. and this theme is, is I mean... I'm getting ahead of time here, but is being repeated again in Creed and the relationship between uh, Creed, Creed Jr. and and Apollo Creed. But we'll come back Absolutely. to that again. Yes, and so the, you know, again, it gets this idea. And at the beginning of the part, the last episode, I said that this movie is about identity, right? Who am I, and how do I know that? And this is the thing that these characters in these two movies are struggling with: is you know, I live in the sh in the in the light of someone else. When someone looks at me or thinks about me, they think of my father. So, who am I, and how do I stab establish who I am in a way that makes sense? Uh, ultimately, we find out in Creed that Robert ends up moving to Vancouver, which is on the other side of the continent and in a, and in, in a different country. Right? It's in Canada uh, on the west coast, whereas Philadelphia's on the east coast. So he had to go as far away as he could. Right, to get his own sense of identity um, between movies. When Rocky said that, it made it sound like it was in another planet. <laughs> this, this place <laughs> called Vancouver, like if, <laughs> it was this small island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, it's part of the, uh, you know, Malaysian archipelago yeah. somewhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, you know, Rocky's a small town guy, right? What are you going to do? Okay. So uh, a small city guy. Anyway, so he takes in, in a sense, Steph and Lil Marie, ends up giving her a job, ends up you know, hanging out uh, with the boy, hanging out with the kid. They go and they get a dog. Uh, they pick out a dog <laughs> for Rocky and they, they, they're talking about a name for the dog. And what does the kid want to name him? Well, they settled on Punchy. They settled on Punchy, yes, the recommendation. Punchy is a reference to being punch drunk, which is what they would call <laughs> boxers who kind of got their brains, you know, rattled a little bit and now are, you know, not quite all there. So, the again, the son is being kind of passive-aggressive here, right? Uh, in, you know, in, in, in a certain way. So we see that theme again. And so something happens kind of out of the blue, you know, kind of a sub story to this or not a sub story, but a parallel story is the new champion of the world boxer is struggling because he doesn't have anybody good to fight. Right. Uh, there's nobody in his weight class that is a worthy opponent. So his pay-per-view fights are not making any any money. And so they're trying to figure out how do we get people to come watch this guy's fights now, this for me in all the Rocky movies was the least interesting opponent, right? Uh, Mason Dixon, I just it did not grab my attention. He was a bland character, played by a real boxer, a real champion. I think he was a light heavyweight champion named uh, Antonio Tarver, a uh, very good boxer. He would have killed Sylvester Stallone in a fight for sure. But th the idea is that, again, even the Mason Dixon is trying to think about his legacy, his identity, right? What is his future? What do people think of him? Even though he's by far the best boxer in the world, nobody wants to watch him. 
Uh, by the way, I just have to say this. Mason Dixon, his nickname was The Line. Now, the, the two of you probably won't know this, but the Mason-Dixon line is the border between Pennsylvania and Maryland in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it was the border between the North and the South in the Civil War. Okay. So I just, I just, it just pulls me out of the character to know that this guy's named Mason Dixon. I just, you know, and I I can't, it's so hard for me to not call him Mason Dixon line because that's (laughs) such a, you know, that's a thing in, in, in American history. But anyway, one of the sports channels does a fantasy fight, which, you know, they do sometimes. They compare fighters across generations, somebody from the past to somebody, you know, newer. And they say, okay, what would have happened if these two fought? And they debate about it and they argue about it. and They have computers involved and that sort of thing. And so they start showing this fantasy fight between Rocky Balboa and Mason Dixon. But is this uh, a real thing TV. in reality? They do these Oh, yeah, they things? do these things, yes. Oh, uh, they, 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 yeah, they often do this. And, you know, people argue about it in bars, you know, would would Rocky Marciano have beaten Muhammad Ali? Would Muhammad Ali have beaten um, Mike Tyson? That sort of thing. Really hard to compare for a lot of reasons that you know, we don't have to go into here. But so it's all Logic. over the news. Stuck with uh, well, you know, it's not just it's, so, it's it's just that it's a different era. Nutrition's different. Training is different, right? You know, pretty much everything. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, if if you remember after the first fight, you know, in Rocky, first thing he does after the fight is light up a cigarette, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, boxers don't train that way these days, right? So anyway, the 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 point is, the uh, computer picks Rocky Balboa to beat. Mason Dixon. Mason Dixon is none too happy about this. His friends are, you know, saying, can you believe this crap they're talking about you, all this sort of stuff. Robert Mason Dixon, is he a three? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I I think Mm -hmm. so. Transmitting three, I would imagine. Right. Mm -hmm. So Robert is in the bar uh, with his friends when this comes on television. That bar is called the Irish Pub. It is still there. It has survived through Corona, a very popular place in Philadelphia. Used to be the best place in the city to go and drink beer and watch football on a Sunday afternoon until all the the, the yuppies took over. But anyway, so they're in this bar and they uh, see this. And what's what's happening when they're watching this in the bar with Robert? Uh, guys, what's going on? The friends are making a big fuss, a big fuss mm-hmm. about him being the son of Rocky. Yes, yes, yeah, and he's he's embarrassed by it. He's irritated. He's frustrated. He's you know again, I can't get away from this guy. Right, is kind of what he's feeling. Rocky decides at this point too. He's kind of coming back to life. Right, the experience with Lil Marie and uh, Steph has started to stir something in him again right um and he wants to see you know can i still do it can i get back in the ring and stand toe-to-toe with someone now he doesn't think he wants to fight the heavyweight champion he just wants to do a couple of local fights like he used to do back in the day and he goes for his license and they deny him even though he passed the physical and all that other stuff and he gives this speech Right, uh, the first of a couple of speeches uh, Rocky gives in, in this movie, where he convinces the uh, athletic commission to give him his license. But it's funny that he's about to leave when he does it. So he's standing up almost at the door when he gives his speech. So again, yes. it's this temptation to not do anything about to it, but up. then to give up, but then halfway through, change his mind and say something. Yes, yes. 
And so he makes a compelling case why a 59-year-old man should be given a, you know, a license to box professionally in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, you know, uh, and again, you know, look, it's, as we said, it's a spiritual allegory and it's not a, uh, you know, a reality-based <laughs> film, right? Or, or, or a fantasy. Uh, so when it gets into the news that he got his license, again, the promoters of Mason the Line Dixon say, hey, here's a way we can make money. This is something that people will care about, that people will watch, and we can make money off of this. So they convince uh, Mason Dixon to hold a, um, a exhibition bout with Rocky. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Interesting that in the three movies there's something like that. It's just convenient yes. to pack these fights this way because it it sells, and it's kind of a three thing. It's useful. It's good thinking. It it's good business, and um, so if it works, let's go for it. Yes, and the tension between Rocky, who's doing this because it's just something I feel the need to do, and I don't want to look like a show off. I don't want to look like a three, basically, resist this. It's about this tension between the nine mm. and three points in the Enneagram. Okay. So uh, Rocky gets the offer. The two guys show up at Adrian's and make the offer to him, you know, uh, and he, so he's conflicted. He sits outside in the van with little Maria as he's driving her home uh, one evening and she gives him a speech. Enneagram type of little Marie. What do you, what do you guys think? Remember when he was offering her the job as yeah. the hostess. So, are you going to have me at the door welcoming people? It was mm-hmm. not a, not really self-confident. No. A thousand people who could be better at this, yeah. she said. She felt kind of nine-ish to me, right? Um, she felt, again, not quite. She felt more nine than six to me, right? Mm. Um, yeah, there wasn't although, a lot of anxiety. Right, mm-hmm. right. It was just this sort of uh, preserving nine, I'm nobody, I'm nothing, I'm just here to kind of get through sort of uh, thing, right? uh, I think. So she tells him that, you know, there, there's there's a couple of things, and I'm, I'm, I wrote this down because it was interesting to me what she said. Uh, he talks with her and says, you know, why am I doing this? Is it ego? Am I just looking to replace old pain with new pain? Do I really want to just go toe-to-toe? She says to him, you know, you have that fire. Uh, This is who you are and who you will always be. It doesn't matter how it looks to other people. It only matters how it looks to you. If something you want to do and have to do, 
you do it. And then she kind of looks at him and says, you're not going to punch me, are you? And then she says, uh, I better get out of here before I've, uh, you know, overdone my welcome. Again, kind of evidence of a nine, right? You know, it's like, all right, uh, here's what I'm going to say, but, you know, this might really bother you. I don't want to offend you, you know, all these sort of things, but here's what I think. So he decides to do it. He goes to the press meeting. He's going to fight this guy, uh, Ricky Conlon, uh, who is about to go to jail. And so this is his last. Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm jumping creep. movies. Boy, no. see, here's what happens. No. They all blend together. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, he's going to fight uh, Mason Dixon, you know, and they have this press conference. And again, he's kind of humiliated, just like he was by Apollo Creed mm-hmm. in the first movie. And he has a confrontation with his son outside on the street. Anybody want to comment on that? To me, to me, that was. It's one of the best scenes. And when you mentioned in the previous podcast episode that it was also about the stunting of the core qualities, I see it as that, but I also see it as the nurturing of confidence, getting Robert, giving him the evidence of why he was great and what uh, he had to do to gain confidence in himself and what not to do so that he will feel that confidence. So to me, it was about that. And I think it was a tough call for a father to be so tough kind of with a son, but it was what he had to do and he was effective, but it was, I think it was beautiful. So uh, I'm going to read what he says to him because I, I, kept pausing the recording and typing it out as, as I went. So, uh, you know, he kind of, he kind of looked, you know, the son says to him, look, you know, why are you doing this? You know, you're making a fool of yourself. You're embarrassing me. You're making my life harder. And Rocky sits back and he holds up his hand and he says, you know, you used to fit right here in my hand. And I used to tell your mother, you know, this is going to be the best kid ever, right? The best kid in the world. He's going to be better than anybody I've ever known. And you were wonderful. And when it came time for you to be your own man and take on the world, you did. But at some point you changed. You stopped being you. You let people stick a finger in your eye and tell you you were no good. And when things got hard, you started looking for something to blame, like a big shadow. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there if you let it. Not me or nobody is going to hit you as hard as life. It's not about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving, how much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, go out and get what you want. But you got to be willing to take the hits, not pointing fingers at anyone and, and saying, I'm where I am because of him. That's what cowards do. And you're no coward. So again, as we talked about with the six, the um, fixation is cowardice, right? It's of seeing something and then not going for it because of the fear. Okay. And um, so there is this. And and you can almost, you know, Rocky's talking to his son, but he's talking to himself as well. Right? Mm-hmm. So I agree with you, Maria Jose. This is about these three points. Okay. Again, of, you know, am I valuable? Right. Am I worthy of love? And do I have what it takes to survive? So there's this questioning of it now. And, and again, as I watched that scene, I kept thinking, okay, is this just ego talk, right? Is this, you know, are we going to be criticized for, you know, oh, this is not spiritual. This is just doing this. And I, I don't give a crap. Um, it's, you know, this is what life is. And if spirituality is not about how we 
cope with life more effectively, then I have no time for it. Uh, I see some of these sentences are being repeated again with creeds. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially mm-hmm. the sentence that it's not about uh, being tough or it's about receiving the hit and keep on moving after that, something like that. And that demonstrates again that the three, six, and nine are interchangeable pieces of each other. Yeah. Right. Mm. That, that, you know, yeah. all these pieces manifest in three sixes and nines, but it's just like you're looking at something from different angles. Okay. And every three, every six, every nine, and of course, every human being wrestles with these issues. Okay. Which again speaks to the core qualities. Go ahead. Maria. Yeah. So, so I, I'm not sure if we have defined all core qualities, but in the case of the uh, point six, it's confidence. And yes. As we see uh, that in immature in an immature version is the ignorance of threat. So it's these again being naive in terms of what's going to happen to me in, during my life. So um, I I don't feel fear because I don't know what's coming. But then the mature version of this confidence is the appropriate preparation. So I think that's what what is Rocky is preparing his son for. It's like you know yes. what. Things will come at you, but, you know, if you're prepared and you have what it takes to be prepared for it, just stop blaming the world and and grow up. And to your point, uh, Mario Jose, this is what we see in the theme of the movies. I mean, the three movies that the preparation is a key to build the right confidence. It's not like a confidence that you get from uh, uh, the feedback from the people around you or for the way you present yourself. It's the, it's the confidence they get for from being prepared for the situation. It's a preparation and it's not the lack of fear because he mentions fear all the yes. time. And yes. he says, it's good. It helps you have the yes. energy to fight back. Yes. And so it's the evidence, it's a preparation, it's I know what I'm good at. And I'm yes. no, I know what I'm not good at. Yes. So it's it's uh, and building on those strengths that gives me confidence. Yes. Later we see before the fight with Mason Dixon, Dixon takes him aside and says, "Now look old man, you know, I'm I'm not going to hurt you." Right. This is just an exhibition. I'll I'll keep you up and make you look good. But if you try to hurt me, then I'm going to kill you. Right. And, um, you know, so he's basically threatening him. He's basically, you know, speaking down to him. And as he starts to walk away, Rocky says to him, hey, Mason, aren't you just a little bit afraid? And he looks at him and he says, no, I don't become afraid. And this is where Rocky turns to his son, who they've now kind of made up and is, is with him, says, you know, maybe he ought to try a little bit harder, you know, and uh, fear is a good thing. It's always worked for me. Right? And again, we see that through the theme of the Rocky movies, right, is this idea of I am afraid. I'm going to get into the ring with the best boxer that's ever been. Right. And I'm scared to death but I'm going to do it anyway. But, you know, Rocky prepares. He realizes, or his trainers realize that, you know what? You know, I don't have, I don't have speed. I I don't have endurance or you don't have it. You know, your knees have arthritis, all this sort of thing. (laughs) So you just have to get strong, right? And that's what the, uh, that's what they train for is just being strong and powerful and resilient so you can hit. He trains for the fight. He gets into the fight. And of course he almost beats 
Mason Dixon. But it's and it's this movie where he leaves the ring yeah. before they even read uh, the decision, right? Because he just doesn't care. And at the same time, as you pointed out in the previous podcast, Maria Jose, he's kind of glorying in the adulation. But again, this is not, you know, it doesn't feel to me like an ego being stroked. He's just kind of truly enjoying it and connecting with people and letting people see him. You know, it's not like he, of course, he's probably, I mean, enjoying the kind of enjoying the experience, but it's in a different way. It doesn't change him. It doesn't, that's not what he needs to feel good about himself. It's also interesting for me. It's clear that um, Stallone thought this was going to be the end of Rocky, right? It, um, there's a couple of things that indicate that Uh, number one, it's that part of it. It is also when he, the final scene where he goes back to see Adrian Adrian. and, you know, pulls the chair out of the tree and all that sort of stuff. I don't know if you caught this, but when he walks away Rocky actually disappears from the screen, right? He doesn't, you know, it doesn't, he doesn't walk out of the picture. He fades away. And then they cut to the scene of him at the stairs. And that's kind of how they start the credits. They finish the credits with, they filmed all these people running up the steps uh, to the Rocky theme. You know, we have not talked about the Rocky theme. And I think I want to finish this. It's surprising to me that we have not talked about the theme song other than to mention that it is, you know, was a, a big hit. I, I, I mean, one of the most iconic pieces of music, I think, in movie history, right? I mean, I think it's got to be one of the most recognizable. You know, I don't know from you guys. Again, we didn't talk about the cultural differences and how it affected this movie. But was that a piece of music you guys were familiar with? Yeah, yeah but it's was- not. I, I'm not sure that it will have it. It had the same impact that in the states, or let alone mm-hmm. Philadelphia. You know. But it, it, so the music budget for the first movie was $25,000, which is almost nothing. And so they had to make use of this. And it is a big brass. It reminds me of music that would be playing at a Roman Coliseum or something. You know, I mean, it's just so, so big, so, uh, you know, filled with energy, so inspiring that it makes this, you know, recurring theme. And so that starts to play uh, as it goes through and the music is playing at the credits as people are running up and down the stairs. So key points here for the movie are that it was it's it's about overcoming of grief and resentment and the, the the shutting down of ourselves in reaction to that it's about time we didn't talk about time yet but there's the scene with paulie and the watch right when he gets um you know forcefully retired from his job at the meat plant and they give him a check and you know the rocky says well you know if you retired why didn't they give you a watch you know and he said you know he freaks out i don't need a watch i have a watch again it's about time you know as a recurring theme mm-hmm. through this and aging and again distance from our fundamental nature that happens yeah, and I think that if we go back to the core qualities, we've mentioned the core quality at point nine that it's benevolence. We've mentioned point six, and at point three, we have mentioned that uh, that it's value. But again, in an immature way, it's this self-centered importance. So I need other people to make me feel that I have value, right. Right. and it is through uh, the accelerator that its purpose. Uh, finding my own purpose. Why am I doing it? And this is little Marie's speech. It's whatever you want to do. 
it's, it doesn't matter what other people want to do. Right. And the mature way, I mean, the mature version of value is the self-possessed achievement. And that's what I think it displayed at the end of the fight. He's just grounded. You know, he doesn't need the other uh, people cheering. He's enjoying it, but it's, he doesn't need it. The other thing that I just want to um, reiterate is that the, the transformative practice for nines is around this idea of generativity. generativity. Right? It's about coming to the realization of, well, wait a minute. I, I am somebody. I am worthy of being loved. I am worthy. I do have value. And the only way or one of the ways that's easiest for them to remember this is through service to others uh, in a selfless sort of way, right? It's not about stroking the ego. It's not about I'm going to get something out of this. I mean, Rocky didn't have anything to gain from helping Lil Marie and Steps other than the intrinsic value of doing so. so. And, and he's all the time doing that throughout the movies. You know, he's just being nice to people in the street, to young people. It's always young people that yes. come to him and he's really nice with them and yes. saying things. I remember in kind of Rocky, when the guys are in the street, he says, you guys are getting better every year. You know, he yes. didn't have to say that, but it's just right. the way in which he's nurturing and helping uh, the future generations, that it's just a theme in all the movies. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Find out more about the Enneagram and our offerings at awarenesstoaction.com. And if you enjoyed the episode, please go online and give us a review. We'll see you next time.